right? Well, we've been going through an Advent series that we started last week. Advent just means the arrival of a notable person. And so this person that we've been waiting for is obviously Jesus. He is the reason for the season. He is, um, he is here now. So this sermon series is called, The Lord is Here. He's here. And my call to all of us is, do we recognize it? Are we centering our life around it? We're, we're a gospel-centered family of disciple makers, amen? And so in order to be centered on the gospel, we have to make sure that everything, not just Christmas, but every part of our life is centered around him, which includes this time because it's hard. It's actually sometimes even more difficult whenever our culture comes around and just says, oh, oh, uh, unto us a child was born and he was away in a manger and there was no room for him in the end and all this, all this stuff that even our secular culture recognizes and plays whenever we're in shopping malls and, and stuff like that, plays different songs and Christmas carols that have great, beautiful theology in them. It's hard for us, it's hard for us to even hone in on the true meaning of the uh, incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. But we've been waiting on him for a very long time. The Bible has waited on him for a very long time. Whenever we see this passage that, is, uh, that Penny read for us today, all the way back from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 that we looked at last week, that uh, there's going to be a hero that comes and it's, it's gonna be a bruising war. Someone's gonna bruise his heel and he's gonna bruise the head of another. And so we, we have to recognize that really what Christmas is about is about the destruction of the works of the enemy. We, we read that last week, did we not? First John 3, 8, this is the reason the Son of Man has come, to put an end to the works of the devil. That's Christmas. That's Christmas. And so what we see today in our passage is something really, really amazing, is that the announcement of the arrival of this Messiah, the one that's going to remove the curse of sin comes, comes not in a way that we expect it, not in a way that uh, would make sense to maybe us. You know, in, in, in years past, uh, God would speak primarily through one of his kings, King David, and said that there's gonna be a greater king coming from the line of David. And the first time we get the announcement of the coming king from the line of David, it's given to a 15-year-old virgin unmarried woman, young girl, young girl, and what we see in our passage today is that her response to this good news, listen to me, is singing. The response to this good news is she sings this beautiful song that Penny read for us today. And there's a lot of singing around Christmas, is there not? Even our, like I said, in the, in the shopping malls and stuff, there's songs that are going on that are festive, that are about the Christmas season. Yes, sometimes they're about jingle bells and chestnuts roasting on an open fire and, you know, just other sentimental things. But other times they're like uh, actually talking about the, the risen Christ. And I think it's really important for us to recognize that during this season, if we want to sing appropriately, if we want to sing appropriately, we need to see the reason why Mary broke out into song. Because what happened whenever Mary heard this good news, the very first thing that happened in her heart was exultation. My soul magnifies the Lord. And it wasn't, it wasn't. You know what, now I really need to get my act together. 
Now I really need to double down on those 10 commandments. And I think a lot of times whenever we think about having a religious experience here in the Bible Belt, we say, we're gonna turn over a new leaf. Today is gonna be the day. I'm gonna start reading my Bible every single morning. I'm gonna get up at 4.30. I promise I'm gonna do it this time. I know I made that goal last week and I didn't do it, but this week, this is the, this is the time I'm gonna do it. And this is not how Mary responds. She doesn't try to double down. All she does is respond. She responds with beauty coming out of her soul. And every Christian in this room, look at me, uh, you know this to be true whenever you have an encounter with Jesus. The encounter with Jesus doesn't make you want to white knuckle, white knuckle and say, I'm gonna be better this year than I was last year. New Year's resolutions are coming up and, and, and this is whenever I'm gonna actually go through the entire Bible reading plan that I said I was gonna do with my accountability group last year, but I didn't know, know what comes out whenever you experience experience the, the incarnate second coming of Christ and the truth of who God is, is you just sing. You just sing and your heart is overwhelmed with the beauty of the attributes of God, the beauty of who God actually is. So it's amazing that Mary was the very first one to understand this passage, to understand the message of the good news of Jesus. And so I, let me read a couple of the, the verses that Penny read for us earlier so well. It says this in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. Verse 47, it says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And then she says, for, for, and you know what that means? Uh, that, the word for is really the word because, because, and then she goes on to display, why am I singing about all of these things? Why is my soul magnifying all, all, that, uh, all that the Lord has done in my heart? And the answer to us today that I want us all to see is that she is rejoicing because she clearly sees with the eyes of her heart the attributes of who God is and what he has actually come to do. She sees who God is. God is the mighty one. He is the holy one. He is the merciful one. And whenever she sees this, she's forever changed. And if you're in this room and you're, you've know the Christmas carols just through kind of osmosis and stuff, and you know Hark There, um, the herald angels sing and all this stuff, you can either sing those on autopilot or you can sing those with your heart aflame with beautiful theology that reminds you of the lordship of Jesus over everything, including your sin, which is the reason why he came. So Mary is changed in a moment whenever she gets this message and she responds with a little bit of doubt. Uh, we, we like to think a lot of times in the Old Testament, Old Testament and New Testament, whenever we read something, we just say, oh, those were, those were primitive people. Those were primitive people that didn't really understand. They didn't really have doubts like us modern Western people. We, we, we have a level head on our shoulders. We actually know how to correspond whenever we see something that doesn't seem to make sense. But no, that's not the experience that Mary has whatsoever. She doubts just like everyone else. She doubts just a little bit. She says earlier in this passage, she says, how can these things be? How can they actually be? And so she responds the same way that you and I would have responded. Like, this sounds impossible. This sounds absolutely impossible, but the angel Gabriel, this little background, you know what he says in verse 37? He says, wait a second, wait a second. Mary, 
you're a, a young Jewish girl, right? Which means that you're probably taught by your father the Torah. You're probably taught by your father the Ten Commandments. You're probably taught by your father who Yahweh is, the God of your fathers. You probably know and understand that there's nothing outside of his purview. Then why don't you actually believe it? That's what the angel really comes to her and says. Why don't you actually believe it? Because in verse 37 it says, for nothing is impossible with God. And she's try, and the angel Gabriel's trying to remind her and trying to put her theology into practice. He says, you know this, you've been taught this since you're a little girl, why don't you actually believe it? So that whenever you have an encounter with God, that's actually real and the good news of God is being proclaimed and professed over you, guess what should happen? Your heart should burst. It should burst with truth and beauty and with song because whenever you recognize the truth of God, you realize that there is nothing, there is nothing that is impossible for God. Absolutely nothing. And so what we see here in this proclamation to this young, virgin, unwed teenager is that she recognizes the truth of who God is and as I said, completely changes everything. And so what we need to learn from Mary is the proper response of every Christian. I think it's true, I think it's theologically accurate to say that Mary was the very first New Testament Christian. She was the very first New Testament Christian. She heard it and she responded to the gospel the same way that you and I are to respond to the gospel. And I'll tell you what, uh, this good news, this gospel is gonna be under attack from our secular age always. It props up in different ways, um, but it's always going to be, it's always gonna be under attack in this way or in that way to say, oh, this isn't that really this isn't really that big of a deal, or uh, you shouldn't really actually listen to all these stories in the New Testament. Uh, maybe the Catholic Church messed with them back in the Council of Nicaea. You've probably heard these, um, some of these before. But I think right now what's going on in this room is not necessarily that we are struggling with an intellectual belief that all these things did happen. We're actually struggling with the um, orthopraxy or the practice of our faith infiltrating all of our real life. And I think it's probably because of this, okay? I think it's probably because whenever we are going through this life, we say, yeah, sure, God, um, God the Son is born of a virgin. I, I agree with all that, but what's going on with all this suffering in the world? Why hasn't he eliminated this yet? Why, why is this still going on? Which kind of brings me back to how I called you to prayer. During this season, there might be a lot of pain points in this room right now and they revolve around relationships that, are, that you're struggling with, relationships that you don't have, that you wish you still had, right? That you recognize during this time that there is a lot of things that aren't, aren't how they should be, aren't how they should be. And what's crazy about all of this is this is nothing new. This is nothing new. Um, we're always going to struggle with the sufferings of this world until Jesus comes back. But I tell you what, I don't have the answers to all the suffering in the world. And I've had my fair dose of it this month. I've had my fair dose. But I promise you, I know what the reason is not. That happens again, I'm switching. <laughs> the reason that it's not is this. It's not because he doesn't care. 
It's not because he doesn't care. I don't know what the reason for your suffering is. I don't know what the reason for my suffering is. I don't know, but I know God cares more about it than I do or he wouldn't have come. This Christmas season, we were reminded that God came to put an end to the works of the devil. He came to put an end to sin, suffering, and death once and for all to say that I, I will make a way where there is no way. I will, I will squash, I will squash all the pain and the suffering. And one day, whenever you see me face to face, I will wipe every tear from your eye. I'll make all the sad things come untrue and it will all be okay. I don't know why you're going through it now and it's real. It's very, very real, but I promise you, it's not because he doesn't care or he would have never come in the first place. He has come, he has come. So you know, and you can recognize, and you can believe. Hebrews chapter four, verse 15 says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. This means that all of your financial problems, he knows them. Church, he knows them. He was born to a poor, uh, poor teen, a teenager. And all the, 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 the struggles that you have in your heart about, oh, there's political turmoil going on. And man, I've never seen America like this at this point in time. And I, I don't even know what to think about our political leaders at this point. He was born into a country that was occupied by foreign invaders. He knows you might be struggling with anxiety. And in the garden, garden of Gethsemane, uh, he had more, so much anxiety and so much fear that he was literally sweating drops of blood. He knows it to the fullest extent. He, he might know about your humiliation that you can't get over right now. And you say, there's something that's gone on in the past that, I'm, that, that keeps on nagging away at me and I cannot get over it. And why would God even allow that to happen? And the answer again for me is I don't know, but I know that Jesus was put on trial illegitimately and he was wrongfully killed in your place. So he knows what it's like to be humiliated. He knows what it's like to be lonely. If you're lonely in this room, he, he on the cross had no friends around him. At the time that he needed his friends the most, they had all deserted him. Jesus knew what it was like to be lonely. He knew what it was like to experience the flood of temptation. What did I just read in Hebrews chapter four? He, he is a high priest that is, that is willing, that wasn't only willing, but he is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but he was tempted in every way. You know what that means? That when you and I are tempted, you and I, what do we do whenever we're tempted? And we deal with it for a little bit and then we fold and we indulge in the sin, right? Jesus, the temptations intensified and intensified and intensified. He knows the temptations that you're struggling with right now to the nth degree. He knew it. He knows your temptations way more than you know your temptations because he worked his way all the way through them, all the way through them. He knows your temptations more. He knows your brokenness more. Christian, Jesus knows. He knows he is not your enemy. He is not the person. He is not the God that we should be railing against. He is the God that we should fall on our knees and say, thanks be to you that you exist because without you, I am completely lost. And this is what Mary recognized. Mary recognized when she responded to this message in faith. She responded in faith and she sang she sang because she knew that God was powerful, that God was loving, that God was good. And that's what I wanna hone in on just for a few moments right now. I wanna hone in on what, what were the attributes of God that caused her heart's 
her heart to sing. And in verse 49, we see three different attributes that I want to really hone in on. In verse 49, it says, for he, talking about God, who is mighty, has done great things. He is mighty, she declares. And have you ever thought about the mightiness of God? It's like, Cody, of course we have. Oh, we know God can do anything. We, we believe that um, somehow creation started, and, and it started how Genesis 1 talks about it, and we believe that uh, the word of his power was able to bring nothing in, into uh, something out of nothing, and we believe that he is a mighty, powerful God. The God that holds the universe in his hands like it was a speck, and then he became a speck inside that speck, right? You ever thought about that? The mighty, the mighty God of the universe became a one-cell organism that started off, started off in the Virgin Mary. The most vulnerable thing you could possibly be, God, the second person of the Trinity. He said, I will, I will limit myself to even that so that I can empathize with their weaknesses, so, I, so that they know Without a shadow of a doubt, I have experienced their suffering. I know everything that's going on in their life. The mighty power of God took his might and became vulnerable so that we, me and you, can understand the depth and the height and the width of his love. How mighty, how powerful. Is that what you would do if you had infinite power? Would you limit yourself to that uh, level of vulnerability? Of course you wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wish I would have. I wish I would, but I know that the, the depths of the sin that's deep in this heart. I know how wretched of a sinner I actually am. So I know I wouldn't use my power philanthropically, but he gave it all away. He used all of his might just to become a servant. And the, he goes on, she goes on to say in verse 49, uh, another attribute, and holy is his name. Not only, not only does she declare God to be mighty, but she declares God to be holy. Holy, you know what this means? He is completely, he is completely against all the things that you're going through right now. All your pain, all your sin, all your suffering. What do we do? What do we do with all these things? We are upset, we're angry, we're remorseful, and we have this strange ability to be able to hope in it. But Jesus says, you know what, I'm holy, so therefore I'm gonna do what they can't do. I'm going to put an end to all this suffering. And see, God is a God that, that would not allow any sin to go unpunished or to go unforgiven. And that's what we've experienced here in Christianity. In Christianity, we see this melding, this beautiful fusion, this beautiful fusion of God's perfect love and his perfect justice. God would be unjust to sweep our sin under the rug. He does not do that. He doesn't say, he doesn't say oh, that's okay. I'm, I'll grade on a curve because of Jesus. No, of course he doesn't say that. He would be unjust. He would be wicked, but he's not wicked. He says, I will die in their place. I will take the punishment that they deserve. I am holy, holy, holy. This is how the Lord declares himself to be. So we have to recognize this. We have to recognize the, the beauty of his holiness. And let's pause for a second. Two attributes right there. A lot of power, a lot of might, and what? A whole lot of holiness. Is that good news for me and you? 
Just those two attributes, that God, be, that God is mighty and God is holy. If that's all he was, you and I, or at least me, would be in a whole lot of trouble because there is something that is so broken inside this heart. There's something that is so dark. That's something that is so wicked that I think of myself more than I think of other people, that I think of myself more than I think of worshiping God, who is my creator and master, Lord and savior, who I'm supposed to live for with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, but yet I don't, yet I don't. And if I stood before a, a, a God that was just mighty and just holy, I would have no hope whatsoever. But, but, look at verse 50. It says, for his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. The third attribute that she brings up is she goes, I know that you're mighty. I know that you're holy, but I also know that you're merciful. I know that you're merciful. And so imagine a God, imagine a God um, that's kind of like a, a business owner. I knew a, a business uh, in a small town that I, I lived in for about five years that uh, was a grocery store. And whenever the 2008, 2007 uh, financial crisis came, their grocery store multiplied fourfold because they were a zero debt, or zero debt, debt company. They enjoyed um, like living by biblical principles. And because of that, whenever the financial storm came, they were able to survive and actually thrive. And what they did is they kept on acquiring other grocery stores that went under because they had different business practices. And I asked them one day, I said, what do you, how did you acquire all these stores? What, what was the, the prudent business practice that you, that you did? And they said, well, we go in there and we do an evaluation of all the assets, including the people. And most likely it was so mismanaged that we just fired all the people and acquired all the assets. That's what a God that is just mighty and just holy would have done with us. But they, he also tells this story of <laughs> this one HR director from the largest firm that they kind of took over during this, during this takeover. And one of the things that he said was, there was this guy who was an HR director and they said, what's the best thing about this company? And they said, this HR director, and I don't know if they watched The Office or not, but they were like, Toby Flinderson, this is the number one thing that you're excited about? Is Toby from the, uh, the HR director? How could this be? And so they met him, they said he was gregarious and everyone loved him and they said, all right, whenever we acquire these assets, we're also gonna choose him to be in charge of all of our HR. And, they, and they, took, they took him in. They were, quote unquote, merciful because they chose this man. They chose this man. And our God, our God is way more merciful than canning everyone else and like just grabbing one person. He, he says, you are my people. I will do anything I can. I will, I will move heaven and earth. I'll even come down to earth so that I can gain you. He's mighty. He's holy. He's merciful. And there is no joy in Christmas unless these three things come together. And this is how Mary responds. Mary responds to faith in the attributes of God, in the attributes of God of being displayed to all of, it, to all of us. And you see the, the rest of this hymn that Mary declares is just talking about the things that God has done in the past. God, you are the God that scatters the proud. You're the God that brings down uh, the mighty from their thrones. You're the God that fills the hungry. You're the God that helps your servant, your servants and your people. This is who you are and you fulfill the promises that you've given to Abraham and to your people. This is what you do. This is who you are. And this is important because what we see here 
is that Christianity is a, a historical reality. This is not a list of dogmas. This is not a, a, a new moral code that you and I are supposed to abide and live by and remain in and try to follow regimentedly. This is, a, this is an historical reality that, that is so annoying to those that uh, don't want Jesus to be Lord and master of all because they have to deal, they have to deal with the truth. They have to deal with this historical facts of the crucified, resurrected one that started a movement not by conquest like every other religion in the world or not by ideology that just stayed in one section for millennia after millennia after millennia in one part of the globe. This is, this is a religion. This is a ideology that has completely captured the hearts of people to where they said, I'll lay down my life willingly. Why? Um, uh, you, uh, because Jesus is Lord. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure that I live in such a way that honors the real king not, this king, not this earthly king over here. In fact, my king, King Jesus, is the one that appointed you, and he's the only Lord. And if you do anything outside of his, uh, of his purview, guess what? It's my responsibility as his servant to correct you to correct you. And they willingly did this throughout every, and they were killed in droves. And the more they killed them, the more they multiplied. What does this? What on earth can do this? Historical reality. And whenever they proclaimed, whenever the apostles proclaimed the gospel early on to the church, you know what they said? They didn't say, hey, here's this new, here's this new powerful uh, sentiment. Here's this new powerful dogma. Here's this new powerful code that you should all follow. They said, hey, there was a guy that was dead and now he's alive and he said he was Lord of all. I'm following him no matter what. Amen. I'm following him no matter what. That's what they said. That's what they said. They pointed back to a historical reality, a historical reality that, they, that everyone has to come to grips with. Everyone has to come to grips with. So let's, let's apply this, shall we? What did Mary do whenever she heard this good news? Verse 38. Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. This is right before she starts singing. Let it be done to me according to your word. Mary knew. Mary knew what was going to happen in her life. She knew the consequences. She was a small town girl living in a in a small town world, all right? <laughs> so she knew. She knew what was about to happen. She knew the rumor mill that was about to start, all right? She knew that she was pregnant before she actually got married. And she knew the slander that that was gonna, that, that was gonna take place over her life. She knew that for the rest of her life, she was gonna be seen with a scarlet letter on her, over her chest. And she will be um, disenfranchised by her society. But she said, God, if this is true, and you've really done this in the history of the world and in my life, I'm your servant. So how do we respond? We respond the same way. Say, God, I surrender. I surrender all. These are your attributes. You are, you are mighty. You are holy. You are merciful to someone like me, even though I'm a wretched sinner. Therefore, I'm your servant. I'm your servant. Command me and I will move. And, and listen, this is so hard, is it not? It's so hard, right? We want to be in charge. Surrender is not natural to our Western sentimental realities and the way that we've been brought up within our culture. It is so hard. Martin Luther thought it was hard. He, was, he, he tried everything he could to get right with God. Do you know the story of Martin Luther? 
Martin Luther was a Catholic monk that said, the righteousness and holiness of God, the more he read the Bible, the more he was stressed out. He says, I am so unclean. And so he would go to the confessional five, six times a day, so much so that the priest was like, oh my goodness, here comes Martin again. What am I doing? I got to close up shop or something. I got to get out of here because he knew I am so unclean. I, I, I need help. I, I don't know what to do. But eventually he, he read, he read that, um, that the gospel was the power of God to salvation for all who believe. And to the one who does not work but justifies, uh, but trusts in him who justifies the um, ungodly, to him, it's, his faith is counted as righteousness. And he says, oh my goodness, I have to surrender. I cannot earn this. I cannot, I cannot make God pleased with me through my, my moral code and my piety. I cannot do it. And so he said, in all, all my Bible study, again, he was a Christian monk, but he wasn't saved. He wasn't regenerated. He didn't have the second birth. And as soon as, he, as soon as the second birth came flooding into his heart, whenever he heard the gospel, he said, God, I surrender all. I surrender all. You might be saying, Cody, you said a history reference, and I don't pay attention during history. I understand that. I have several people in my family that are just like this. So listen to, listen to this uh, story from Madonna. It might, might be from 1991. Uh, don't listen, don't ask where I got this, but uh, it's, it's, it's really, really important. It's really, really telling about my heart and your heart. This is Madonna's words. I have an iron will and all, my, and all of my will has always been to conquer some, some horrible feeling of inadequacy within my heart. I'm always struggling with, with that fear. I push past it for a spell. Um, for a season and discover myself to be a special human being. Then I get on another stage and I just think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find, and I find a way to get uh, myself out of that for a season and then it goes on again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's what's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become someone, I still feel like I have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Madonna, the theologian, all right? That peers into my heart, into your heart, to where we feel like, man, I gotta strive. I gotta work so hard. I gotta work so hard. No, the answer is what Mary does, surrender. Surrender. C.S. Lewis says this, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature that needs moral conformity or moral improvement. He is a rebel against God who must lay down his arms. You must surrender all to him. And whenever you do, you know what will happen inside your heart? You'll begin to sing because you realize that your surrender is not, is not anything but liberty. You surrendering to him actually grants you freedom from him. And you'll say with Mary, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. This, this is what we need. So Redeemer, have you done this? Have you surrendered all to him? Have you recognized the gospel? Have you recognized who the God of the Bible is and that he is calling and beckoning out to you? What areas of your life do you have to have control over the, all the areas of your life that you have control over. Jesus is not okay. Listen to me. Jesus is not okay with your Sunday life. 
He's not okay with your life whenever you go to your grow group or your life whenever you go to your uh, gospel community. He is not okay with just having that part of your life. He says, I'm Lord of all. I'm Lord of everything. And listen, I'm not trying to shame anyone in this room. I'm not. I promise you I'm not. But I I, want to keep you from the trap that the enemy whispers in your mind. This week I'll be better. Today I'll be better. This afternoon I'll work harder. And then I'll strive and I'll strive and I'll strive. Guess what? You're just a slave if you do that. You're a slave to your passions. You're a slave to your desires. And instead, we're supposed to be what Paul says in Romans 1.1. Who am I? I'm Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That word there is slave. Romans 1.1, it says the ESV renders it as slave but it, or servant, but it's really slave. And what, what happens is whenever we become a servant of God, we actually... Uh, we're not bound to living this boring, pious, Martin Luther-like life. We actually have life and life to the full because it comes from God himself. Are you free? Let me tell you how you're not free, and then we'll, we'll close with this. How you're not free. I talk every week um, with someone uh, either in this room or I try to encourage them, hey, how are you doing with Jesus and stuff? And I get this probably once a week. You know what? I just, I just can't find time to read my Bible. Can't really find time to pray. Can't really find time to, to do this, that, or the other. And I, you know what? I never do this because I don't really have the guts to do it. But I'm thinking it and in my mind, and I'm going to say it now. So I just kind of know this is what I'm feeling and thinking whenever you say this. Um, whether that's sinful or just from the Lord, you know, you be the judge with a clear conscience. I, I, I want to ask this question. It's like, hey, do you, how many unread notifications do you have on your phone? How many unread text messages do you have? And when's your time to catch up on that? Because I doubt there's very many of us that have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of unread text messages on our phone. Emails, that's another story. But text messages, the personal reach out, man, I bet we find time. I bet we find time to do that. And as we're looking at that, what are we really saying? We're saying, I'm a servant to you. And whenever you ring the bell, I'm on my way because you are my real master. I can't read the Bible. I can't do all these things because really what we're struggling with is who is your master? Who is your Lord? Is it the tools that God has given us? And I'm not anti-cell phone. I'm very pro, like technology. We live in an amazing time. This is, this is awesome. It's all for God's glory. But if we're not careful, we'll become tremendous servants of these things. Whenever Jesus says, come to me and abide in me, remain in me, walk with me. Here's the habits of grace. Here's the people of God. Here's my word so that you can pray without ceasing at any time. No one's stopping you. You have full-flown, full-fledged access to me. Are you accessing it? Are you saying, no, no, really, I'm a servant to this thing over, over here. Whenever Mary saw the hardships that God was going to put her through to usher in the riddance of sin in the world. She willingly accepted it. And it brought her joy. And she repented. And she said, God, you are my Savior. You are my Lord. You are my Master. And listen, friends. 
we have access to the truths of God that Mary didn't have. Mary knew, maybe, she, maybe Mary knew her Bible really well that the suffering servant was going to go and die and, and, and like a sleep led to the slaughter. Maybe she knew Isaiah 53. But I, I can't imagine since the disciples didn't really know it, Mary didn't really know it either. So she just got a, a glimpse of how awesome God is. What we get on this side of this story is we get a glimpse of how amazing our God is. That yes, Mary, Mary was amazing. She repented appropriately. She sang and gave her glory, glory to God. And she agreed and surrendered to become a marked woman. But we know that Jesus was gonna be infinitely more marked than she ever was. Jesus was gonna be infinitely more marked that Isaiah 53, when he was gonna be humiliated and stricken by God, he was gonna be separated from God himself. Why? For you and for me. Mary took her hands off of her life and what did it give her? It gave her peace. It gave her her life. She says, I am the servant of God. Whenever Jesus says, I am a servant of God, what did it get him? Death, death in the place of me and you. Jesus infinitely, infinitely did everything that Mary said that she was going to do, but she did, but he did so much more. So let us draw near to the God, to the God who can empathize with us in our weakness. Let us draw near to the Lord that chose to draw near to us. Amen? Let's pray.